There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, Snowflakes. Welcome back to the New European podcast with me, Steve Anglesey, the editor of the New European. Inspired by Rishi Sunak's daring and in no way already guaranteed to happen five pledges, here are my five pledges for this edition of the podcast. Pledge one, there will be some talking on it. Pledge two, some of the talking on it will be about Brexit. Pledge three, some of the talking on it won't be complimentary about Brexit. Pledge four, some of the people talking on it will be Economics expert John T. Bloom and the new Europeans, Eleanor longman Rood and Matt Withers. And Pledge 5. After the talking about Brexit is finished, the podcast will be over. Those are my pledges, so I ask you to judge us on the effort we put in and the results we achieve. Before we talk Sunak and Starmer speeches and Brexit gloom with John T. Bloom, another excellent print edition of the New European is available now. That's issue 323, which has a toilet roll on the cover. Meanwhile, our website and our newsletters are full of stories that take you into the heart of European politics and culture. If you want more of that, there's no better way to support us than by subscribing. And the good news is that podcast listeners can get a year's digital subscription for just £1 a week, or you can get a year's subscription to our print and digital package for £2 a week. Just go to theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. If you subscribe to print and digital for £2 a week, you will get unlimited digital access, plus our award-winning newspaper will be delivered to your door every week for a year. That's theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. So Ellie and Matt will join us for the Hall of Shame, but first, it's a pleasure to welcome back to the podcast the New Europeans, John T. Bloom, a former BBC economics and Europe editor. John T. watches the financial effects of Brexit for us every week. John T., welcome back to the podcast. So welcome back. Um, This week, we've seen Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer set out their stalls for 2023 what what of worth was there in those speeches and what was missing from them um well there was very little of worth in uh, rishi sunak's speech at all i mean considering he's prime minister and he has control of the levers of power and he can basically set his own agenda it was remarkably empty so um we'll bring down inflation well inflation's already peaked and he's not in charge of bringing down inflation so it's going to come down anyway 
Um, we want economic growth. Well, that will return uh, before the next general election, we know. So that's self-fulfilling as well. He's going to bring down waiting lists, presumably not to the level he inherited, because that would be impossible. They've risen so far. Cutting debt. Actually, I was under the impression that debt is predicted to rise for the next three or four years. So he's either going to have to increase taxes or cut spending again to make that. And then there was a usual waffle about ending small boats. Um, I write a blog, a blog sorry, called um, Jonty's Jottings every morning, and I just described it as the cone hotline speech for this administration. Just like John Major, when he completely ran out of ideas, suggested his big idea was a telephone line you could phone up to check why there were cones on the motorway. Um, and, it, you know, <laughs> it wasn't a big idea and it didn't, it didn't make any difference to anybody's life. And I can't see this one, uh, this play, these pledges making any difference either. Um, when it comes to Starmer, um, he's rather cheekily stolen the Brexit slogan of take back control um, and then used that to say that there's going to be far more devolution, that people are going to have control over um, school uh, care and uh, investments and things like that at a, at a local level. Um, but he, he has to be, I mean, oppositions have to be careful. They can't make spending pledges. He's he's not made spending pledges because the Treasury will just employ the civil servants to rip them to pieces. So it has to be a more ephemeral idea. But his general point is um, they can't spend their way out of this problem uh, if they do win power because there isn't any money left, uh, which is quite funny because that's what the Tories said in 2010. But now there isn't any money left. Um, and it's going to take 10 years to repair the damage. And I think he's right. I mean, if you look at what we really need to do, like increase productivity, increase growth, improve education, universities, the health service, um, basically build back capacity in the civil service, which has been eviscerated. That's a decade-long project. And it's not, and, and the results aren't going to show up very quickly at all. Um, it's going to be quite painful. But at least he's willing to address those problems. Rishi Sunak isn't, and he's in power. Yes, I mean, he's, he's promising to do that while running the country's economy as a, like a household economy isn't he and you know Starmer seems to me to be accepting that there is massive underfunding but then he says he won't borrow to correct it and he won't move towards rejoining which would give him some funds to to correct it and then he, he mentions a, a sort of a, a partnership uh doesn't he he mentions a a partnership model between government and the, and the private sector. I mean, does that sound like it adds up to anything for you? Well, the partnership thing is is actually reasonably interesting on the grounds that the Conservative Party used to be called the, the government, uh, the party of business, and has totally destroyed its relationship with business. It's just stopped listening to the CBI or the Chambers of Commerce or any other business organisation you could speak with. Companies are desperate for workers. They nearly all want exemptions to the immigration rules. Um, we just had a discussion today um, with business about the, the fuel allowance, that they get some support for their, the, their fuel, just like households do. Yes. And they've been told it will be much smaller than it is at the moment from March. Well, I, I was speaking to um, uh, some manufacturing experts only the other day, and they said pr production is already moving to Spain. Um, not because energy prices are necessarily lower in Spain, but because they know that the subsidies are going to continue for at least a year or more. Yeah. And that it's impossible to make any investment decisions in the UK if you don't know what your price of energy is going to be in three months' time. This kind of short-termism, incompetent inability to actually give business what they desperately need, which is security and predictability, and then they can get on with the job, 
is just um, just the, the, the kind of motif of this this government. Just look at the EU regulations bill, which they you know we're going to tear up every EU regulation, twenty three thousand of them, but nobody knows what we're replacing them with, or even if we're replacing any of them. Companies can't make investment decisions or production decisions when they don't know what the rules will be, so they won't. Uh, and you know you basically need to say we'll do this slowly. We won't. Um, affect your investment decisions, we'll give you lots of warning, we'll consult you, we'll try and make them better, we'll make sure that they still meet EU standards. You could say all those things, hmm. and companies would be far happier, but they, you know, they don't. Um, and therefore, building a partnership with business is probably a bit of a no-brainer for Labour, because, um, to be frank, the Tories have burnt the boats. Yes. I mean, Sunak, as you said, he promised to half inflation, he promised to cut the debt, he promised to grow the economy by the end of the year. I mean, that sounds, on the face of it, that sounds like a brilliant 12 months. And yet your piece in this week's New European says the worst is is, is yet to come. Um, how bad is this recession going to be? And, and how does it match up with Rishi Sunak's vision of, you know, almost sunlit uplands by the end of the year? Well, Rishi Sunak, to be fair, is doing what every politician does when you go into a recession. He starts talking about how you're going to come out of it. Yeah. And you, you ignore the current and say, oh, it's going to get better in the, in the short period of time. Don't worry about it. And then when it does get better, because all recessions come to end, um, you, you say, well, I told you it was going to get better. You know, so you kind of you try and ignore the reality and just, you know, and talk about when things do improve. Um, but um, this is a particularly difficult recession. It's, it's already started. We think it's going to be over a year long, which is very long for a for a, a recession in, in this country or most countries. And it's going to be um, particularly painful for households. The squeeze on real wages is appalling. The deepest and worst in history is going to put us all back to how wealthy we were in 2015, and we weren't that wealthy then. Um, people are really going to suffer with their energy bills. There is going to be a heck of a lot of misery and pain um, companies are slashing back investment, hospital, anything that's dependent on um, labour is in dire problems because there's a shortage of labour. Going into a recession when uh, the companies who want to do business can't do business because they can't find workers is a pretty disastrous position to be in. Um, and this is going to be very long. And I was asked, as I think I mentioned in the article, I was asked recently at a meeting in my old university, um, you know, out of 10, how bad is this recession going to be? And I said, oh, six or seven. And everyone kind of um, side with relief and I said oh hang on a minute most recessions are two or three <laughs> you know this this is this is disastrous it's extremely painful people are going to die people will freeze to death and the NHS is already falling to peace and winter's only just started um, and it needs more money and there isn't any more money um, or at least the government says there isn't any more money um, and and then when you look at what will happen after the recession that's even more depressing because we just returned to very low growth um, and um, the kind of growth rate we've seen since 2010 has been economically disastrous for us. That, that's why we're not paid as much as we should be. That's why we're all poorer than we ought to be. It's because there's been no growth of any sustained high level since 2010. And I think household earnings would be something like £5,000 a person better off at the moment if we'd had the same kind of sustained growth we'd had in any of the previous decades. Uh, so this, this recession is on top of all that. And it comes on top of Brexit and it comes on, on top of COVID and it comes on top of the banking crisis. And there's no long-term policy to say what we desperately need to do is this, this and this. 
to fix the underlying problems in the economy. It's all kind of, oh, well, eventually we'll come out and there'll be a little bit of growth, vote Tory. Hmm. Well, that's not an economic policy. No, and uh, and of course those, you know, a lot of those factors predate Brexit, don't they? The, the, the problem with growth predates Brexit. Um, how much is it to do with, with stuff that, that's, that came in with the Tories that came in in, in 2010? And, and how much are these things to do with, you know, an underlying decline in, in uh, British industry and, and the way Britain operates? Well, I think the two are kind of inevitably linked. If you, if you look at other countries, everyone was hit by the credit crunch. And remember, we were still pumping out hundreds of billions in quantitative easing years after it happened because the banking system nearly collapsed. It stopped lending. Yes. Companies just couldn't get finance uh, just to even to do business, let alone to invest. And that did have a, an effect, huge effect. But America and quite a few other countries bounced back much more effectively than we did um, because we, we, we took austerity to some ridiculous level. You know, we got rid of 20,000 police officers. And now we've had to hire 20,000 back um, to, you know, to get back to a decent policy of law and order. Well, the most expensive way of maintaining your police force is to fire 20,000 of them and give them redundancy payments and then spend billions rehiring them and training them. It's just complete incompetence. Um, and that austerity, everyone warned um, the Conservatives they were going too far, and they said, no, no, we can do more with less. Well, you know, there's a reason that a Fiat is cheaper than a Rolls-Royce, and it's because the Rolls-Royce is a much better car, mm. and it's bigger, and it's faster, and it's safer, and it has more features. And we have been trying to pretend we had a Rolls-Royce um, political, civil service, um, economic policy, and in fact, we've got a Fiat, and it's really showing that we didn't invest. We had things like reform of the apprentice system in 2016, uh, the same year as the Brexit vote, that has meant we've had something like 300,000 fewer apprentices since then. It's got the same money, it's got the same companies who want to train people, but it's so incompetently organized that they spend the money on something else or don't bother. You could, you could change, if you just changed it back to the apprentice system that we had before 2016, it would be a game changer. You'd have hundreds of thousands of more apprentices. Nobody's done anything about it for, for what's that, that's seven years now. It's an utter disaster. So things like that, things like, um, and then on top of that, you have things like Brexit. So business investment was beginning to recover. 2016, it has flatlined ever since. COVID gave it another knock. It's still not got back to 2016 levels. It should be about 20 or 30% higher than it is. That means um, tired machinery, old factories, inefficient production, um, competitors eating our lunch, all those kind of things. Um, and the government does nothing about that. It does temporary tax breaks. Um, and you talk to business and they say, well, the investment cycle is six years. So you need to, if you're going to cut the taxes to encourage investment, you have to promise to do it for six years because not everyone's going to bring their investment forward five years to take advantage of a quick uh, tax break. They might do it one or two years, so you've got to keep it going. You, you, companies need predictability, uh, and and they need uh, to know what the you know the tax rules are going to be in in four, five, six years time. None of this has happened. Um, the the unpredictability caused by Brexit and then COVID and now the war in Ukraine could have been ameliorated by a sensible government policy of. Um, trying to create stability and consistency and encourage growth by investment and things like that. And 
the government just isn't governing. Um, I was speaking to a political um, journalist friend of mine uh, just last night, and she said, um, you know, it's they don't do anything. Where is the health secretary? Mm. We've got a crisis in the nation. I haven't seen the health secretary. I haven't seen a new policy come up. I haven't seen a, it's a crisis. We'll do this. We'll move resources from here to there. Nothing. And the same in every other department. They just seem to be sitting there twiddling their thumbs in the middle of a crisis. Um, it's unbelievable. Yes, well, I mean, the, the only movement that we've we've kind of seen in that direction seems to, to seem to be the other day when when Sunak indicated that the Boris Johnson plans on social care uh, were not going to go ahead, and whatever you think about uh, you know Boris Johnson and his plans on social care, at least there was a, a plan for social care um, at long last, which which everybody's been talking about for years and years, and no one's really uh, tackled. Um, I mean, let's talk about Steve Barclay and the NHS just a, a little bit more because, you know, this is part of this is this is part of it as well. And mentioned in your excellent piece this week is the the uh, the fantasy that you can have a, a high class welfare system, a high class welfare state system, uh, in a very low tax economy. Mm. Yes, and. Um... I mean, yeah, I think maybe we should look at this in more detail um, in another issue, yes. issue because this this is what it all comes down to. Um, if you look at spending on health in comparable countries like um, uh, France, Germany, or even Scandinavia, it is 2% of GDP higher than the UK. And yet you have the Conservatives bleating on, oh, we've been shoveling money at it and it's getting worse. It obviously needs reforming. Okay, it doesn't need reforming, it needs funding. Mm. If you look at the um, level of investment under the last um, uh, 13 years now of Conservative government, it has been the lowest since the creation of the NHS, when we have an ageing population which is increasing pressure on the NHS. This is, you know, this is not uh, voodoo economics. This is just look at the figures. You know, you cannot fund the NHS uh, with the amount of money it is getting at the moment. And yet, Every time some crisis comes up, it's there's a problem with middle management or uh, it's too bureaucratic or it's inefficient. No, it just is underfunded, right? I'm sure you could find reforms. I'm sure you could do something, but you need to throw another 2% of GDP at it forever. Not just a one-off, say, you know, uh, investment to, you know, fix, um, patch things up, as Keir Starmer has accused the government of, but permanent repair and for permanent investment. Uh, if you look at what happened under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, that's what they did. There was huge amounts of money for the NHS and education. Every school I passed, in the, it was always having a new wing built under Labour. And yet, under the Conservatives, um, they say they're passionate about um, education, but they've cut spending on state schools. It hasn't kept up. Um, so you, don't, you get what you pay for. You get worse schools with really hacked off teachers, who, many of whom are leaving the profession because profession they can make more money working in a supermarket or some other job, um, and you rely on the, the people having a, a vocation for nursing or uh, for health or for uh, ed education. And the social, the social care one, well, we all remember Boris Johnson walking into Downing Street, which must have been three years ago now, saying, I've got, a, I've got a, you know, an oven-ready plan for social care and we're going to implement it immediately. It never happened. Hmm. But two years for him to come up with a policy, he didn't have a policy at all, he was lying through his teeth. 
And yet we know that social care is the big issue, and it's a big issue because we have an aging population that needs increasing amounts of care, or, or they get stuck in hospital. So it's, an, it's a no-brainer. We all knew this was coming. Every research body, every health expert, every NHS um, uh, boss knew that if you didn't provide better social care, the NHS would grind to a halt with elderly people blocking beds. And yet we have fewer beds. And then you have idiots like John Redwood saying, if there's a shortage of beds in the NHS, why don't NHS managers just buy some more beds? And you kind of go, well, for a start, they haven't got the money to buy any beds, but then you need wards to put them in. Uh, and you need nurses to tend them and doctors and porters. And, you know, and there isn't, you know, you provide the money and buy beds, they'll be, they'll be rusting in the garden outside the hospital or in the car park. You, you, you can't, and this, this idea that you can fund these, there's plenty of money, I pay enough in taxes, there's plenty of money, you don't. You live in an economy where we have traditionally taxed at what, 34, 35%, um, and we are trying to provide the same quality of government and care and defense and everything as countries which tax at about 42%. Yes. And that's it. You know, you, they will, you know, the Conservatives will tell you, no, we're more efficient, we're more productive, we want people to spend their own money, uh, we trust them to spend their own money and you don't. Yeah, but you, you know, they also want an NHS and they want a defence, um, uh, you know, a defence of the country which actually has an army with some tanks that they can use, mm -hmm. or some sh or small ships, but we don't, we, can, we continually um, uh, we're slice off spending bit by bit by bit, oh, we need a smaller army, it's all cyber now. You know, we don't need boots on the ground. And then, you know, the, the head of the army says after Ukraine, you, you can't cross a river with cyber. You do need a couple of bridging units. And we haven't got any. We haven't got enough. You know, the, the, the state, state of the uh, armed forces is terrible, actually. And why? Because basically they've been sal salami slicing for years um, under the conservatives who wrap themselves in a the flag and claim they're patriotic. And the same with the NHS, the same with the courts, um, the same with law and order, the same with police. And, and also, you know, if you look at COVID, the, the reaction was slow and inefficient because the long-term planning, the um, emergency systems, the, um, uh, the, the bodies which were supposed to think of the worst possible scenario and prepare for it, they were eviscerated because mm -hmm. everyone said, well, there won't be an emergency tomorrow, so we'll cut them. And the consequences was we didn't have the capacity. We just didn't have any spare capacity because apparently spare capacity is wasted money and it's far more important that we have tax cuts than the ability to deal with something that might kill the whole population. Yes. And you know, and you know as, as well as I do that, that Sunak and, and Hunt will do the, the same old things, won't they? they? They will look for spending efficiencies uh, in the next uh, year or so, and that will eventually lead to a pre-election uh, tax cut. Um, and it, you know, so it goes, and so it goes. I mean, don't mention the Brexit or the Brexit omerta. Pretty much, you know, enforcing both of these speeches, apart from Keir Starmer, uh, he addressed it towards the end of his speech and and in the questions, and he did lift the take back control. Uh, slogan. I, I'm not an economist. Um, the Centre for European Reform, however, they estimate that there's 40 billion uh, a year in tax revenue lost because of Brexit. The, the cost of EU membership after rebates, I think we worked out to be about 10 billion a year. 
what what could you actually do with 30 billion a year what what what, what kind of difference would another 30 billion a year make oh uh, well 30 billion um basically all the tax rises that jeremy hunt announced in his attempt to um correct the quasi quotone uh, budget uh, would be unnecessary um you would have more than enough uh, money to do that but you know 30 billion is also a significant um proportion of um, the NHS spend. Mm. So if we've lost 5.5% of the economy, which we think we have, we, we spend about 10% of our economy, or about 8% of our economy on the NHS, uh, and we should be spending more. So frankly, we've thrown away half the money uh, necessary to keep the NHS going. That's the scale of the, the issue. Or it's um, two and a half times the defence budget, which we have to find again from a smaller tax base. Um, or um, it's all the education policy and several other departments. So, you know, where are you going to... That's that's the problem. No one's talking about it, but we've lost so much money that we, we can't balance the books without saying, well, we're going to have tax rises for the next three or four years, carefully hidden away, all that kind of stuff. Um, it's going to be done by tax, you know, freezing tax allowances and things of that nature, which people don't tend to notice, but everyone is going to be paying significantly more tax for the next four or five years uh, in order to pay for this mess. Uh, and the obvious solution is to do something to reverse those uh, damaging um, red tape at the border and um, trade effects and uh, all that kind of stuff. And nobody's talking about it. Mm. Um, to be fair to Starmer, I don't think he can talk about it at the moment. He's got to win the election persuade the red wall Labour people who voted Brexit to vote for him um, and then start trying to ameliorate it. But there's a limited limit to how much they can ameliorate it because, you know, the EU says, well, you wanted to leave the customs union on the single market. We don't do special deals for mates if they don't rejoin the single market or join the customs union. There are a few things we could do. Um, veterinary standards, the CE mark, just stick with the CE mark so that we don't have to reinvent the wheel and re-regulate our own industries. Uh, the reach standards for the chemistry and uh, chemical industry are exactly the same kind of thing. And that, that would mean that there would be far less red tape at the border. Companies would be invest with knowing that they just had to meet the same standards as the EU and they could sell across Europe and all those kind of things. But um, even that is, is not, is not going to um, bring back that 40 billion. It's, there's no way. Um, we're getting all of that back. It might bring a, you know one or two percent back, but even so, the damage is just huge, and there's nothing we can do about that um, unless really we join the single market. Joining the single market would bring back nearly all of the better benefits. You would have, still have the pain that a huge economy like the UK wasn't sitting at the table making decisions, but you could live with that. It'd be yes. a pain, and it would be um, really annoying, and it would not be in our best interest. But you could live with that. Um, so rejoining the single market is the obvious solution that would in encourage growth. But then on top of that, you do have all these issues we've just been talking about that the government could do and hasn't done and needs to do as well as joining the single market, which is apprenticeships and business investment and education standards and uh, immigration and investment and infrastructure uh, and government spending and a better health service, which includes improves um, productivity because more people can go back to work and more house building so people can move around the country efficiently and work where they're, where they're needed most. All of these things handicap our productivity. None of those are dependent on Brexit. They're on top of Brexit. 
Um, so we have the worst world. We have Brexit plus a completely incompetent government who's not doing any of the things to improve productivity that it could have done inside the EU or outside the EU. It's, it's just a perfect storm. I mean, Rishi Sunak's speech seems to have gone down. Well, it wasn't a Liz Truss uh, five minutes and four questions and then I'm off. But it hasn't, you know, if it was intended to reset his government or give people great confidence, it certainly hasn't done that. And it's come under criticism, even from his own side. Very, you know, criticism from people like Nadine Dorries, you would expect. But the people criticising him in the Tory press, the spectator, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I think there's a real, I mean, there are numerous dangers. There are internal dangers for soon. I can't, there are, and there are external dangers as well. Yeah. What, what could really, could anything really blow this recovery off course now? And do you think that there will have to be more U-turns and more shifts of policy ahead? I, I think you're right. It, I think his, um, his big threat is internal. You, you cannot imagine a, a British Conservative Prime Minister making a speech like this in the pa past. And every sector of the right-wing press, every backbench MP, every right-wing commentator, not saying, my God, that was brilliant. What a, you know, the future is assured. We have a path. He's shown us the way. All we have to do, you know, that's the kind of rhetoric you would expect to get from um, the sycophantic um, press media and politicians who know that unity is their only chance of victory and will just say, you know, even the most incompetent speech was brilliant. This was dull, plodding, lacking in ideas. Um, most of the things are just obviously going to happen anyway, so there's no real change. And many of the internal um, and external supporters of the Conservative Party just pointed this out. And therefore, his biggest problem is internal. You know, nobody can vote him out in a general election until he calls one. But his own members can destroy his, his prime ministership. Mm. And the problem for the... Conservative Party and the country is that the Conservative Party is riven with dissent and um, fantasy economics and um, Brexit ultras and extremists who are perfectly willing to burn the house down around them if they don't get exactly what they want. Um, and therefore, he is tiptoeing through a minefield. He, just look at the Northern Ireland Protocol. You know, the, the the DUP and the ERG within the Conservative Party want to tear it up, break international law, ruin our reputation for um, stability and trust and legality, um, purely because there are some checks on the border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK, which they introduced. Um, and that would cause a trade war with the EU in the middle of a recession, which would be disastrous. It would be disastrous for our international reputation. It would be disastrous for external investment in the UK. The Americans would, th you know, throw a hissy fit. You would, you know, we wouldn't be, you know, the Prime Minister wouldn't be invited to the White House anytime soon. There won't be any state president's visits to the UK anytime soon if we do something like that. It's economically and politically and diplomatically suicidal. But a significant proportion of the Conservative Party will try and force him to do that. And when, as we suspect, he's, go he's going to back down we had that speech from Leo Varadkar basically saying, look, you know, everybody went a bit too far when we were negotiating this. Let's get rid of some of the red tape and the checks. We think we can do this more nicely. And everyone goes, that's not enough. It needs to be, it needs to die. It needs to be totally destroyed. We can never, we're a slave state if the ECJ, the courts, the European courts have any say over any aspect of this relationship. 
and you kind of go, rubbish. Just get rid of the red tape. Northern Ireland's doing perfectly well. Ignore the nutters in your own party. You'll be fine. Can he afford to do that? I don't know. I think he's going to try to come to a compromise with the EU over the Northern Ireland Protocol. And a significant proportion of his own party will never forgive him for that. And they will come for him. So that's the threat for him. It's not that Keir Starmer can't vote it down. Keir Starmer can't call a general election. But 100 or so ERG members can stab him in the back, bring back Boris Johnson or John Redwood or Jacob Rees-Mogg or any of that lot, um, and, and claim that it's the purity of the cause has won, regardless of the economic damage which it will do to the country. And of course, we've got a local election in May, which uh, will provide the ideal opportunity for them to uh, to strike. Uh, thank you so much to John C. Bloom. To read John C. on Hard Times Ahead uh, on the Sunlit Uplands, please pick up issue 323 of the New European, or because it is a bit chilly out there, you can subscribe for £2 a week and get our award-winning newspaper delivered to your door, plus digital access to the complete archive of all John T. Bloom's articles for us. You can do that at the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. John T. Bloom there. Uh, joining us now for the Hall of Shame, where we enshrine malignant ministers, bogus backbenchers, poisonous pundits, all of that kind of bad stuff, are the new Europeans, Eleanor Longmanrood and Matt with us. Uh, welcome back to the podcast. Hello. Hi. Before we launch into the Hall of Shame, uh, let's talk about these two speeches then. It wasn't I Have a Dream versus the Gettysburg Address by any means. Um, Ellie, Rishi Sunak made five pledges, mainly things that he already knows will happen. What pledges would you like to have seen Rishi Sunak make? Yeah, you mentioned it wasn't, you know, the speech isn't exactly going to go into the into the history books, which is definitely... The case there were some amusing comments before I start on these on these pledges that were sort of fairly obvious and things that we assume and hope would happen. You know, people saying, "Okay, well, I also pledge that the sun will rise in the morning and set in the evening. I pledge to you that water is also wet, um, which is fairly apt on the tone. I think for me, it's not so much of what pledges I would like to have seen and made, but also more information on just actually how this is going to be achieved and not just more vague promises that they hope they can duck and dive into the next election and then you know if it's still the case that they're then they're on afterwards then just keep ducking and diving it for example when he said you know we're going to cut inflation or half inflation which as you mentioned you know things that we imagine will be coming down anyway okay fine once that's achieved but how is that going to happen and what happens then after um just a bit more long-term long-term planning rather than as Starmer was, was sort of saying rather than sort of plastering over and you know hoping to get through the next six months just a bit more of a long-term vision but then I guess then the upside of that is that maybe they're not envisioning being there for much much longer than that but just more information and roundedness about what actually okay is then going to come from that how is that going to affect mortgage rates how is that going to affect people trying to get a mortgage um and just a little bit more inspiration is you know I know January is supposed to be a bit of a blue month but just a bit more inspiration. You know, he started off the speech saying something along the lines of now's normally a time for new starts and optimism, but sadly we're not basically there, which is really how you want to get the audience and the media in the room on side. Um, so yeah, that that's my takeaway, I think. And I mean, it strikes me that the, the Tories have gone from somebody who was 
all style and no substance. Then they had somebody who was have no style and no substance, and now they've got somebody who has got no style. I mean, his his delivery is is amazing, Rishi Sunak. He is. I mean, he he is the least charismatic politician. Um, I think probably. Well, I don't know. He's at least charismatic prime minister since um, John Major, and and that's taking. Uh, Gordon Brown and Theresa May into account. He talks like one of those automated tills in a supermarket. What do you? What can Rishi Sunak do about his delivery and his roboticness and the way that he sort of fails to connect with people? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, firstly, you could argue that he has got style. They're just in the form of you know Prada shoes, but that's not quite yeah. what we want at this moment in time. Or um, another comparison I saw was you know comparing him to like a deep fake from, I don't know if either of you saw the capture, um, which is, I think was a genuine thread I read on Twitter last year when he gave the address after he just became prime minister (laughs) from sort of commenting like, this is actually eerily not looking like him sort of thing. But no, he does need some public speaking character personality lessons. Ironically, as he's been speaking this week about more education for other people, maybe he should, you know, you know, all starts at home. Um, but it's not just how he, it's charisma. He's also got this quite patronizing air to him, at least I found, where I don't know, he just sort of says, Oh, well, thank you. And here's what, you know, I'm going to grace you with my presence. And this is what we're going to do. And how have you not worked this all out already? And which I guess maybe comes from his background. I don't know. But when he spoke to the media, I found this at the end, where especially there was one question from the FT's George Parker, who asked about the EU retained law and asked for some clarification on that. Will you say sort of here and now? What's going to happen? Is there going to be a delay? And his response, I know, you know, it's what politicians do, but he seemed to shirk off the whole premise of the question um, and the question entirely and go on about, no, you see, this is, you know, where it's wrong. We need, this is now where we need an innovative economy and to take advantages of the opportunities that we've now um, now been given. So sort of just completely shirking it off. So I think he needs public speaking lessons and just maybe to slightly tone down that element of when he does it in his mouth. Yes, I mean, it's it's just a remarkable, uh, a remarkably robotic thing. And as our, as our designated young person, what do you think about his big idea, which, I mean, the only big idea that he seemed to announce which is to make students study maths until they're 18. But he's going to do that at some undefined point in the future with teachers that we don't have yet. Yeah, it's um, I don't think it's inherently a bad idea. You know, I think we've been discussing this week. It's the norm in a lot of European countries, countries, if not most European countries, to study maths at in some way at some level up until the age of 18. But like you say, it's, it was very vague. Um, we don't actually know how it's going to be achieved or in what level it's going to be achieved. Even after the speech, obviously, we knew about it before. Um, assuming, again, that it won't need to be addressed until after the next election and who knows what will be by then. I think there are, but there's huge issues with it because that points to broader, at, at least for me, broader problems in, in education. Because if adults in Britain or even you know younger people just leaving school now have these poor numeracy skills, then they've all, by that point, they've already got a dozen or so years of education and having had teaching under their belt. So surely it just points to broader education issues in the way we teach a certain subject or the way we teach um, maths, for example, or even other other subjects. But, you know, if by, you can't just add another two years to it and assume that that's going to 
make it better perhaps time isn't actually the issue we should be looking at breaking down how we actually teach maths is it transferable into real world scenarios how are we actually are we making these practical enough um and also where are then the teachers going to come from it's hard enough to recruit you know young graduate teachers as it is with this incentives that already stand let alone for maths which is one of the hardest ones to recruit for the department of education has missed targets for hiring maths teachers um in each of the last four years so schools would need funding and support to account for all of these changes, funnily enough, none of which we actually really heard about. So it's not inherently a bad idea, but, you know, I have to admit, if I was around 15, 16, I would be exceptionally worried because my math skills really aren't great. Um, but as ever, it's just the case of, OK, fine, but how is this actually going to happen? Yes, it's missing a lot of the detail, which is, a, which is I mean, it, to be fair, is a, a criticism that can be made of both of these speeches. Um, Matt, when, when Keir Starmer says take back control, which he did about, um, well, devolution, wasn't it really? Incre increasing devolution. When he says take back control, though, how does that make you feel? Um, well, with the caveat, I didn't watch this whole thing. I only um, kind of had some of my eyes and ears on it. I was writing a piece about uh, lorries on the M20, which uh, people can find on the New European website now. Uh, but no, that phrase uh, doesn't necessarily sit easily with me. Um, as what should on the page be quite an aspirational slogan was used in a, a very, very nasty way by Vote Leave, um, you know, shadowy globalist elites and the like, and yes. taken down some even darker alleys by by others. Um, I can see what they're trying to do and appropriating their rivals' tropes, a, a kind of reversal of 30 rocks, you use Ghostbusters for evil quote, if that's not too obscure a reference. But I can imagine it sticking in more than a few members' throats. Um, I can see what they're doing, but, uh, yeah, I could I could see the, uh, equally that a lot of members will have found that quite difficult today. Uh, yeah, I mean, not the only sort of difficult bit. Obviously, he's, he's, he's still... Um... Apart from take back control, there's pretty much um, don't mention the Brexit, isn't there? Brexit, a murder in Neil Kinnock's phrase. I mean, a, a better phrase I thought was sticking plaster plaster politics. Um, do you think that's going to connect with people? Uh, no, uh, no. I think these things mean nothing to to voters. It just, I, was, I was trying to think of some others like this. Uh, Nick Clegg's alarm clock Britain. Um, if you remember that, I don't know. No, people, I've forgotten about this, that. This was uh, Nick Clegg was trying to appeal to what he called alarm clock Britain, which was people who got up when their alarm clocks went off. And um, the very fact that you've forgotten it, it, it is testament to what a terrible uh, slogan that was. Uh, Ed Miliband's squeezed middle, which again, it doesn't mean anything to the, the, the average voter. Theresa May's red, white, and blue Brexit, which people yes. might. Recall, they mean nothing to votes, and they won't even hear it. And and they say in politics, if you speak to people um, in political communications, to keep saying something, you've got to say it over and over again to the point that you personally are sick to the back teeth of saying it. And that time, the point at which you really, really don't want to hear it again yourself, that will be the first time that it will sink in with a single voter. And I, I don't think Keir Starmer intends to spend the next two years saying sticking plaster politics. No, he seems to like saying Rishi Sunak is weak, though, doesn't he? Which I think is uh, yeah. is probably something that he will keep on and saying. And he's more, much more likely to sink in with voters. Yes. Um, sticking plaster politics. Maybe quiet bat people. Nicola Murray's <laughs> great uh, slogan will uh, we'll take hold. I mean, Starmer has never been a great speaker, but 
I thought that he, you know, at least he he actually seemed today to have, in in not really announcing that much, he seemed to at least have a bit of fire in his belly about it. Is he is he getting better? Do you think? Yeah, I do. Um, I mean, uh, there's bits I'm not sure about. I don't know about the 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 literally rolling your sleeves up thing. It makes him look like he's walking around a a hospital as opposed to a you know a high tech innovation center in East London. Uh, he's improving. I think he's more he's more passionate now. Um, he's technically hitting his his beats a bit more proficiently. I say that as a stand up comic. His his arm movements and gestures are a bit more natural and less obviously performative. Um, I'm just reminded of, I think it was probably a couple of years, 18 months, a couple of years ago now, I interviewed Carwin Jones, um, former First Minister of Wales for the New European, and I, I remarked to him after the interview how much more open um, emotionally and how much more he gave of himself speaking to me once he'd left office. And I, I covered his term as First Minister, much of it, and he never he never gave up anything of himself then. And he said, well, look, I'm, I'm a lawyer and that's that's what we were trained to do. Mm. And I think I think there's a lot of that with Keir Starmer. I, I think you are trained not to give anything of yourself up and, and not to be too overtly uh, passionate. It's a bit like, you know, footballers who are, who are media trained the, the entire life out of them. So they say nothing except, you know, the lads are down, but we go again next week. Um, and I think Starmer needs to give a bit more of that. I, if people want to um, listen to his Desert Island Disc with Lauren Laverne, where he's talking about his backstory, which is a, a very good story, um, I think a bit more of that would help because he does have a story to tell. And I think he is in it for the right reasons, as opposed to Rishi Sunak, who, um, you know, is there because he believes that being prime minister is what you do after being head boy at Winchester and then the fortune in finance. I, I think Starmer's got a story to tell. And I think... He's still got a bit of that loyally thing, um, but uh, yeah, I think he, I think he's a big improvement he, he, in the time he's he's been there. He's he's really improved in a way that people like Ed Miliband over five years didn't. Yes, and I mean he's canny as well, isn't he? Because if you want to seem less robotic than other people, I think the best thing to do is is to do what he did today, which is to be introduced by Rachel Reeves, who, who for <laughs> yeah. all her. Um, for all her, her many qualities, is uh, is is frighteningly uh, and, robotic, and also he's very lucky in, in being against Rishi Sunak. Yes, this is very, this is this is very true. Rachel Reeves and, and Keir Starmer, by the way, always uh, always remind me of the other two from New Order: uh, Stephen Morris <laughs> and Gillian Gilbert. Oh, never wow. seen together in the same room. Ellie, which of the two speeches was better, and why? Uh, before I say, also, we're talking about how he cannot appear robotic and perhaps help that he was, in fact, stood in front of a robotic arm or some sort of robotic arm. He was, he looked like Dr. Octopus. It was he very did. strange. Assisted with then, for the first however many minutes, with the technical issue, he sort of sounded a bit like a Dalek. So, you know, that probably didn't go quite in his favour, which does was then resolved. Um, but whose who's was my favourite? I think it would have to be have to be Starmer's. It's not exactly my favourite um, decision to make in the world. As we've mentioned, neither of them were particularly outstanding nor going in the history books. But I think for no other reason than I just find it quite difficult to listen to listen to Sunak um, with his way he speaks and the tone of a tone of doing so, which, as we've mentioned, needs significant, um, significant education. And Matt, I mean, was, was Starmer's better for you? 
Yeah, I'll give it to Starmer for two reasons. As I say, I, I think his, his speaking's improved a great deal. Um, Sunak reminded me of a father reading a, a bedtime book to his kids, which is fine, and I'm sure he is a very good father, but that's not the tone you need for a prime ministerial speech. And secondly, I think both speeches sound like they were being made by a leader of the opposition, but only one of them is the leader of the opposition. Yes, that's right. You're right about, you're right about Sunak. He, he does have an air of... Of I'm explaining this to a simpleton, doesn't yeah. he? About him, it is. It is very, very much like that. Um, let's turn to the Hall of Shame then. Um, I always put Anne Widdicombe in the Hall of Shame. She always deserves to be in it. This week, her column. I mean, I, I, I opened a, the Daily Express as I as I do with great trepidation once a week. And her column this week was partly about how she was stockpiling baby powder. So I had to shut the Daily Express quite quickly <laughs> and then turn to her column in the in the one that we, we missed, the December 28th edition. And she wrote this. I'm not going to do the voice. I will do the voice. I do not disagree that many families are struggling with the cost of living crisis, she started. Uh, but looking at the heaving shops and restaurants, I cannot help but wonder if the prophets of doom are living on the same planet as the rest of us. Uh, she's looking at heaving shops and restaurants on December the 28th. And, you know, I know Anne Widdicombe listens to this podcast every week, so I want to introduce her to a concept that she's clearly not familiar with, which is... With the concept of Christmas and what happens at Christmas, it happens in December, like towards the end of December. And when you went out and wrote this, thought, saw these people and wrote this column about it, what you were seeing was actually people um, in shops because they were buying presents for other family members. And then the people that were in the restaurants, um, they were sharing meals with work colleagues perhaps or just friends and stuff like that and then it, it tends to slow down it's 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 christmas it's called christmas it's not a conspiracy by the woke uh woke in the media to pretend that that um uh, everything is going wrong uh well britain shops pubs restaurants everything else are actually full of people spending loads of money uh eleanor longman rude who is going in the hall of shame for you this week yeah, so first up for me this week in the Hall of Shame is Steve Barclay. Uh, so this is the news that the NHS is facing, you know, a huge crisis, huge wait times um, this week. So according to the Royal College of Emergency Medicine, 500 people could be dying each week because of these delays in emergency care. And so after all that news, after 13 years of Tory rule, you'd think that they might have some answers or a lot to answer for, but you would be wrong. Uh, because this week, the health secretary blamed flu, COVID on the crisis in the NHS. When he was directly asked if the situation was acceptable, he said no. Excellent. It's pretty low bar, but still, there we go. Um, however, he then continued to say, actually, you know, in terms of pointing the finger and blame, uh, it was due to a combination of very high flu rates, uh, persistent and very high levels of COVID, continuing concerns, and particularly among many, uh, many patient parents around strep A. Um, so who else was there left to blame? It was Christmas, of course. He added that the fact that GPs and other primary care facilities were actually shut over the festive period added to the pressure. Um, and I'm quite curious as to how long this list of other people and the inanimate objects will be before he eventually contemplates turning the finger on himself and even the government, but fairly long, I imagine. Um, and then next up for me is Matt Hancock. 
He's been in here numerous times over the last few months, especially during his bizarre tenure on I'm a Celebrity. Um, but he's in here this week after the news that his book, The Pandemic Diaries, which I know we've discussed here before, which is this retrospective diary stroke ego exercise on how he triumphantly handled the pandemic. Um, and it's officially flopped. Released on the 6th of December, it sold a humble 3,304 copies in its first week on the shelves and just 600 odd in the second, giving the indication that it wasn't really quite the stocking filler that he thought it would be or the Christmas gift you might give to a loved one. Um, however, fear not, he is rumoured to be in the next series of Strictly Come Dancing, so any Hancock fans need not worry at all. Maybe some shiny spandex and some hot dance move may prove his third time lucky to win the hearts of the nation. And that is a thought that won't be leaving my mind anytime soon. Blimey. So Matt Hancock, spandex, and when he comes, baby powder. Matt Withers, what other horrific images can you provide for us? Uh, well, nothing that matches up to either of, of those, I'm very pleased to say. Um, my first entrant uh, this week is Virginia Blackburn, uh, another Daily Express columnist and, a, and uh, a firm opponent of the scourge, which is working from home. Uh, this week, she decried what she calls grim news to start the year. Kiwi shoe polish is to disappear from our shelves as the demand for shiny shoes isn't there anymore. She goes on. Casual is as casual does. And if we look, think and act like a loser, then that's what we will be. And it will impact on our work too. Declining standards have been going on for decades. Ripped jeans are commonplace and no one wears hats anymore. Well, at least she almost certainly approves of Jacob Rees-Mogg. But her column reminded me of uh, Peter Hitchinson's assertion that he realised the country had completely gone to the dogs the day he saw John Major not wearing a tie on a Sunday. Uh, <laughs> and anyone who reminds me of Peter Hitchens gets a one-way ticket to the Hall of Shame. Uh, but my prime entrance this week is Asa Bennett, who spent the hours before Rishi Sunak's big speech this week touring the broadcast studios, offering his unsolicited advice on what the Prime Minister should say and how. And who is this Asa Bennett? Well, he is no less than the speechwriter for Liz Truss for his, her entire 50 days in office. Uh, and as such is the man behind the god-awful word suits which Truss delivered with all the passion and emotion of someone explaining the fire alarm to their new au pair. So I'm tempted to applaud him for his sheer chutzpah, but instead, let's consign Asa Bennett to the Hall of Shame to reflect on his life choices. Oh, uh, wow. Uh, one more or, or two more from me. Um, Isabel Oakeshott and Richard Tice are in the Hall of Shame. Uh, they are a gruesome twosome. Brexiteer journalist Isabel Oakeshott, leader of the Brexiteer Reform Party, Richard Tice, and they are standing in for Piers Morgan on Talk TV this week. I, you might have missed it. In fact, uh, you probably have missed it. Um, Richard Tice uh, said this week uh, that nothing worked anymore uh, because Britain was broken. And Richard Tice should know because by funding Leave EU and then the Brexit Party, he, he broke it. And his romantic partner, Isabel Oakeshott, recently said this on Talk TV about the nurses' strike. They're not all angels. When you're in a hospital setting, there is a lot of standing around. I'm not being funny, but there's an awful lot of cups of tea around the nurses and chit-chat. The bastards. Uh, you can get more of that on Richard and Isabel's show. It's not so much the one show as the two number twos show. Uh, and it makes me say something that I have never said 
before. Get Piers Morgan back on our TV screens as quickly as possible. That was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey, Ellie Longman-Rood and Matt Withers. Thank you to our guest, John T. Bloom. Thanks to you for listening, as always. Thanks to John Dakin, our producer. If you don't want to miss an episode of this podcast, you can subscribe. Give us nice ratings and lovely reviews wherever you can. Uh, you can join our Facebook readers group and you can follow us on twitter you can follow the new european on twitter at the new european you can follow me on twitter at sanglesey uh ellie where can people follow you uh people can follow me at e longman underscore rude and matt withers where can people follow you and where can people see you doing comedy Oh, well, you can follow me on Twitter at Matt Withers uh, for the comedy. God knows I haven't got my calendar in front of me. You can follow me. My, my comedy stuff's on Instagram at Mr. Matt Withers, but I uh, I update it very sporadically. Uh, a reminder of our special offer for new subscribers. If you go to the new european.co.uk slash TNE podcast, you can join us for the great price of a pound a week for digital or two pounds a week for print and digital. So... Uh, and that you'll find at the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. Uh, so until the next time we meet, goodbye from Ellie Longman Rood. Goodbye. Goodbye from Matt Withers. Farewell. And from me, as always, it's so long, snowflakes. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.